Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you all for tuning in wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I get the sense at the moment there's a lot of bread making going on as people listen to the podcast. Uh, Lots of other inspiring activities too, of which more later. But uh, there's a kind of build up of bread makers. John Lennon, 1970s in the Dakota. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, But anyway, as I say, more of that later. We have got so much to cram in in our time together. I'm going to reflect, if it's okay with all of you, on a subject, do you remember it, called Brexit? Uh, That kind of far-off, distant theme before harmony harmony descended on the UK and silence. Uh, I'm, God, I'm so cross about it. This is going to be a cross rock and roll politics. I know I always seek to adapt a deceptively kind of kind, gentle tone. It, it disguises fury, actually. Anyway, a bit more of that uh, later. Uh, your brilliant questions on a whole range of different things. The pandemic, Keir Starmer, the Labour Party more widely, views from France, Italy, all kinds of places. Uh, that's all to come in the time we've got together. Before that, a quick reminder... It will be like almost the olden days. Rock and Roll Politics is coming live from King's Place on June the 28th. Obviously, it will still be socially distanced. They've done it brilliantly. It will be the safest place to be, I can tell you, uh, at King's Place. That's June the 28th. And if you can't get tickets, there are still some available, but they're going fast and obviously not as many as in, in inverted commas, normal times. Uh, It'll be streamed as well. But do try and come along. God, we'll have, God knows where we'll be by then. We'll have a lot to get through. So before we have a wider discussion via your questions, Brexit. Dun, 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 dun. Keir Starmer might not have anything to say. And by the way, what good is it doing him, his silence on this huge, huge lurking issue? Uh, I don't think it's converted a single voter back to Labour, his clunky silence on the issue. Anyway, what chutzpah from Boris Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost. Apparently arrived in Carbis Bay, Frosty, with uh, Union Jack socks. I'm surprised. Why didn't he just turn up draped in a Union Jack and his Union Jack swimming trunks and then he could have taken off the flag and then leapt into the gorgeous sea in Cornwall with his Union Jack swimming trunks and so on. Uh, The parading of kind of jingoism via his socks is revealing I think it I don't think it's an assertion of self-confidence at all I think it kind of reflects uh, it reflects a machismo which disguises considerable doubt and so there should be because we return to that word which um, we've explored in much detail in these podcasts I think it's arguably the most important word in politics consequences And Johnson's genius, if it can be called genius, has on the whole been to avoid consequences, both in his private life, actually, and certainly in his public life, saying things, making commitments that don't materialise and still soaring. But at times, leaders become trapped by consequences. He is by no means alone in that respect. Tony Blair, in putting the case for going to war in Iraq, focused 
far too hard. I know the reasons why he did it, because he wanted UN backing, etc., etc., on weapons of mass destruction. He didn't dare think through the consequences if no such weapons were discovered. Thatcher, when she hailed the uh, sale of council houses as a great egalitarian move, was indifferent to the consequences, which was a shortage of affordable rented accommodation, which distorts Britain or England to this very day and remains a huge challenge. Consequences. But Johnson, most of all. There are so many examples, but the Irish protocol is quite staggering. Let's just step back a bit. Where were we before Johnson became Prime Minister? May put forward a proposition on Brexit, which in retrospect, and that's another podcast, uh, uh, Labour should have voted for. And us lot campaigning for second referendums, we were wrong, it seems to me. But that's another podcast. But where we were then was the idea of Britain remaining in the customs union uh, until magical technology was discovered uh, to police a border between Northern Ireland out of the single market and the rest of Ireland still in it. That's where we were. Now, in reality, that would have meant Britain remaining in the customs union, a perfectly sensible outcome of the whole Brexit drama. But uh, this was famously unacceptable to Johnson. And he, remember the EU, signed up to May's deal, having put forward a proposition similar to Johnson's one. Johnson comes along and proposes a border between uh, Northern Ireland and Great Britain. The EU couldn't believe it, that he was basically reverting to their original proposition. And at this point, it's worth stepping back even further. I think I've mentioned this before on a podcast. But I remember the then German ambassador to London having a breakfast with him. I think it was before the referendum. And he was reflecting that although uh, the UK was unique in the European Union in having a mainstream party that England normally elected to power, being so Eurosceptic and many coming out for leaving, Britain was the least suited to do so. It would be easier for France, Germany, Italy, any of the others to leave because of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, the fact that a part of uh, Ireland as a whole would be in the European Union and a part Northern Ireland out. And he, he observed then, and of course this was the point Major and Blair made during the referendum campaign, but it was ignored, that the whole process of Brexit would put at, uh, at in jeopardy the Good Friday Agreement and much more besides. It is a consequence of Brexit unless, as May proposed, and even then it might not have solved it, Britain remained in the customs union awaiting magical technology from Mars or something to police that huge border area. Anyway, Johnson comes along. Uh, reverts back to the original EU proposition, claims a diplomatic triumph, great victory for Britain, and then went into an election arguing that there was this oven-ready deal. He made promises, it's famously tweeted every day by people, that there would be no checks on this border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, and then signed the protocol which absolutely established uh, the concept of checks in a very precise way. 
He claimed this too was a triumph for British negotiation. Frost was the chief negotiator, and uh, if you read it, you would know that there were going to be checks, and business leaders in Northern Ireland knew that too. And when Johnson said, over my dead body, over my dead body, they were baffled because they had read it and couldn't see how this would materialise. Now it has materialised. Uh, Johnson and Frosty say the EU are behaving appallingly. Or, to quote another minister, they are taking a purist interpretation of the agreement, the protocol. Now what, what a word, what a revealing word, purist. Uh, what they mean by that, if you translate it, is they believed what they were signing. Britain, not, let's not call it Britain. I don't like when the BBC said, oh, we and the UK are taking a different line on this. It's not the whole of the UK. It's, it's Johnson and Frosty. Uh, and a, a weak cabinet uh, rallying behind the unquestionably at the moment mighty Johnson because he's popular. And popularity gives a prime minister total omnipotence over a British government. Uh, so that's where we are. And, you know, the, the chutzpah is just breathtaking uh, to sign up to something that was the inevitable consequence of your own distinct proposition to move away from Theresa May uh, and then blame the other side for what then follows. Consequences, consequences is uh, I, I can't quite think of another example. Now, we can see the way they're going to play it and are already starting to do the British government. They're going to brief against the European Union and it may well work electorally. Uh, voters liked that dynamic, Britain against Europe. It reminds them of the war and all these other dangerous fantasies that define contemporary British politics. But we are now in a very interesting and hard-to-read situation, which is that someone, some, one of the two sides, will have to concede. And I can't see how the EU concedes or why they should. Britain signed up to this. So did the European Union. Um, but at the same time, Johnson signed up to something that did challenge the essence of his argument for Brexit. He and Frosty have this fantasy of a British sovereignty, Britain alone, global Britain, um, and actually they don't mind trading sovereignty with Australia and New Zealand for tiny, puny little deals, which they parade as if they were as big as the deal Britain had with Europe, uh, uh, Japan. And places they're quite happy to trade sovereignty but they have said they will not do so with the European Union and yet because this was as Johnson and Frosty agreed uh, the, to become the gateway to the single market in effect uh, to avoid a border in the middle of Ireland um, th there has to be some sort of equivalence you know that famous word equivalence that gets uh, pure talk about the term pure, purist Brexiteers, starting to foam at the mouth, oh my god, equivalence, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so this is, this is actually a big moment, and one that highlights vividly what has been true from the beginning, that Brexit is not done. 
uh, I remember spending, on behalf of all of you, a lot of Christmas reading the withdrawal agreement, which was unveiled on, um, not the you know the, the 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 trading arrangements that were unveiled on Christmas Eve. Great, uh, wonderful Christmas present, wonderful Christmas present for for the British. Uh, Frosty triumph for Frosty, Frosty looking you know pleased with himself now at the heart of government with his own ministerial brief in the Lords. You know this former guy running the whiskey association or whatever it was in scotland now at the heart of everything um but it kicked everything into the long grass uh, that that deal hailed as a british negotiating triumph and here we have the most extraordinary example of kicking the grass because this grace period in which there has been at least some flexibility in terms of movement of goods uh, comes to an end at the end of this month so this has to be resolved within days or this grace period has to be extended but that is no resolution of the problem it is epic politics maybe there will be a fudge maybe both sides will fudge it and there will be some kind of compromise in which there is equivalence over some goods but not others so johnson can claim a victory the eu can claim a victory but I bet the EU won't concede on meat and sausages, the sausage crisis, you know. Um, I thought Frosty might come in to the talks at Carvis Bay with a sausage in a Union Jack um, to portray his jingoistic commitment to the free movement of sausages. And uh, in that, if Britain is to uh, ensure free movement, to use that again, emotive term, isn't it extraordinary how all the terms are so highly charged in this debate? Um, they will have to agree to some kind of equivalence to arrangements within the EU single market because Johnson agreed with Frosty to this being the gateway to the single market. It was Johnson's proposition when he took over to get a deal but to avoid Theresa May's deal. That's all he was bothered about at the time. He wasn't thinking through the consequences. Or if he did, he thought, oh, we'll come to that when we come to it and I'll disown it um, and just pretend it's a, we've been betrayed by the Europe and have a battle with Europe. There is one other twist, one other wild card, and that's Biden and the United States. Johnson aches a, to be seen to be having a good relationship with Biden and the United States and B, aches for a US trade deal, a kind of trophy to parade around in the build-up to the next election, um, if he needs one, uh, to show that uh, Brexit has been a triumph. Uh, it wouldn't show that, and it would be a deal in which many compromises were made, compromises that Britain isn't willing to do with Europe, but would for these far-off places, US, Australia, and so on. It's all perverse, bonkers. Um, but that's, that's where we are, and Biden therefore has leverage. And he knows what Britain signed up to. He is committed to the Good Friday Agreement and feels this incredibly strong bond with Ireland. And that gives him bargaining power. In all of this. I don't think Johnson will want to be in any way disowned by Biden and the US administration and he risks it if he tears up the protocol that he himself hailed as a great negotiating triumph not long ago. 
Now, perhaps there will be some pragmatic, muddled way through. But even if that happens, it's a reminder, and there are many, many more examples, that Brexit is far from done. And the consequences, that word again, will be played out for years to come. And as I said at the beginning, in that context, why Keir Starmer opts for silence? Well, we know why. He thinks just mentioning the word will mean the red wall's gone forever. But given his record so far in the red wall areas, surely he must realise there is space for a critique of this Brexit, day in, day out, whilst saying pledging. He can do a big speech. He's not good at timing moments for big interventions where he makes it absolutely clear that under him, Britain will never rejoin the European Union, but that Johnson's chosen Brexit is a catastrophe. And there is space in that, I think. Um, I mean, the events post the referendum are incredibly complex and tragic in so many ways. And as I say, in retrospect, you can see that it would have been wiser for all to accept the outcome of the referendum and focus on getting a sensible Brexit. I don't blame any of us, including Starmer and others, using the dramatic twist of a hung parliament in 2017 to pursue the cause of staying in, because that we, it really was the best of both worlds, the more I think about it, opting out of all kinds of things, but remaining absolutely at the heart of this huge free trade area. Um, all understandable, but retrospectively, a terrible mistake. But I equally think it is clunky and a terrible mistake to opt for silence when all this is erupting around us. Um, now, there aren't votes for Labour or the Tories in Northern Ireland, or not many. But as I say, it's symbolic of a much wider chaos from the kick it into the long grass, ignore the consequences approach to a hard Brexit. Anyway, just like the olden times, isn't it? Talking about this kind of thing. Uh, but I just watched that summit in the chutzpah of the British line, uh, which to their credit, uh, Beth Rigby of Sky and uh, Gary Gibbon of Channel 4 News challenged Johnson on all of this. Some of the other broadcasters reported it much more from the British perspective, or as if it's something that has descended from the sky, ignoring the fact the origins arise from Johnson's chosen Brexit route. More to come in the weeks to follow on Brexit. Sorry, that was, I don't know what I was doing. That was me being, you know, trying to drum up more excitement. I think we better move on to questions before, I mean, Brexit, we all go crazy. Uh, reflecting on it. Uh, yeah, I, uh, Tim Bale, the brilliant uh, Tim Bale, who you will all know from his various uh, contributions, articles, research, uh, and so on. Uh, I, I, I said to Tim, I'd mention this because he um, mentioned to me, uh, he highlighted an article which was fascinating. You know, in this podcast, we're all reflecting on terms and how they become ubiquitous while being misleading. Uh, one of the ones I've been obsessed with and is modernization. We've explored it a lot uh, on this podcast. What a deceptive 
uh, term it is. You know, Cameron, I'm a Tory modernizer, like Blair was a Labour modernizer. You know, nonsense. Um, anyway, uh, Tim alerted me to another article because, as you know, um, I was fascinated by the Cummings evidence and his analysis of what went wrong um, in that seven-hour interrogation. It seems to have done him more harm than good. It certainly predictably led to an increase in support for Johnson. But that's um, voters not, are just not paying attention to this kind of thing. But... Uh, Tim Bale uh, sent me a link to a really interesting article analysing the term groupthink, which Cummings uses in a derogatory way. Um, and it's an article which shows, again, a rather like modernisation, how it actually detracts from an explanation, in this case, of the organisational failures of the UK pandemic response. And it's fascinating. Because it's an easy term to bandy around. The problem was groupthink. Everybody sharing the same wrong assumptions and so on. Anyway, this article dissects the term. Um, and it's on the BMJ website. Uh, the link is a really long link. But if you uh, Google BMJ, why groupthink detracts, you should come to it. Uh, one of the authors is Stephen Reicher. There are others. Um, so take a look. It's, it's another example. Maybe we should discuss it more. Uh, groupthink and why it's a bit of a red herring in terms of explaining things. Uh, Dom Thanks, Tim. Dominica Jewell from France says, interestingly, th this, that she has watched the French national news on two channels. Uh, I think this was on Sunday. And there wasn't a single mention of the G7. Uh, actually, I'm surprised by that, Dominica, although in the UK it was done in a rather sort of parochial triumph for Johnson kind of way in, in some quarters. Um, Macron had a very interesting role in that G7, and so I'm, I'm surprised it didn't get coverage. Maybe it did on Saturday, which was the more meaty day of the uh, G7, as far as there was much meat. Uh, Andrew Mulholland, ciao from Italy. Uh, I hope you're having a good time there, Andrew. Uh, I'm prompted to write this morning, this is uh, again at the end of the weekend, having just read some of the coverage from the G7. Uh, yeah, well, Andrew here echoes what I've just been going on about, actually. Uh, exasperation of Britain's diplomatic ineptitude, as Andrew puts it. Uh, I got to then think about Johnson's personal position. To what extent do you feel that he remains the hostage of the Eurosceptic right? Uh, yeah, well, I... Oh, by the way, Andrew says, no recipes today. Uh, he's given us brilliant recipes, which, incidentally, Andrew, have been taken up by some listeners who've sent me photos of the outcome. Good consequences, uh, not bad ones. Uh, although he does say, I plan to cook an aubergine pasta bake in honour of the podcast when I listen to it. Oh, wow. Um, well, if at some point you could give us the recipe for that, I think we'll all give it a go in light of the previous triumph, in which I seem to remember olives featured heavily. Um, I don't think, actually... Johnson any longer is the prisoner of the Eurosceptic right. He is the prisoner of his own policy decisions now. Uh, it, because he is so popular at the moment uh, in England, not the rest, uh, but in England, um, and only in parts of England, but a significant part of England, um, he can do what he wants. But the consequences of his own policies in terms of Brexit trap him. 
Now, no doubt he'll try and get out of it by blaming Europe for every decision that has to be made in the coming years. And given the British media and the inclinations of enough English voters, perhaps it will work politically. But there will be terrible consequences for the future of the UK and the economy. And perhaps if Britain or England becomes a bit more politically aware, electorally, um, but I think it's because of policy decisions he has chosen to, to make. Uh, the Eurosceptic right is now the dominant force in the parliamentary party. Uh, but as I say, while Johnson remains popular, he can do what he wants. It's for a prime minister, they have space if polls suggest they're a winner and they become trapped and a, a, a complete victim of the whims of their party if they are behind in the polls. But so I think it's more the consequences of his policies at the moment anyway. Enjoy the pasta bake. Aubergine pasta bake sounds great. Uh, Noah Keat has, uh, writes in partly to announce, big announcement this, uh, that he has finished his university essays and exams and now has more time to listen to rock and roll politics. Well, to be honest, Noah, that's far more fruitful than exams, you know, and all the rest of it. No, I hope you did really well uh, in the exams. Let us know. Um, I bet you do. Um, he asks about the role of leader of the opposition. Even though it's often called the worst job in politics, I'm writing to ask what value you think it brings, if any, for preparation to be a prime minister. I found it striking how the most electorally, if not politically successful prime ministers like Thatcher, Blair and Cameron had a solid few years as leader of the opposition compared to Callaghan, Brown and May, who didn't. Uh, and you're absolutely right. This is a key to understanding leadership. Being leader of the opposition is the best possible preparation to become Prime Minister. I always argue it helps hugely if you've also been a cabinet minister, especially in one of the big spending departments. As we discovered with Theresa May being in the Home Office, though a huge test, is not a good preparation for becoming Prime Minister. But being leader of the opposition kind of mirrors the Prime Minister. You have to respond quickly to all kinds of unexpected twists and turns. You have to manage a difficult party. You have to unveil policies and so on. So it's closer to being a Prime Minister. Uh, you deal with Prime Minister's questions, so you are experienced at that, although you've been asking the questions rather than answering them. Of course, the other thing is you do then have to win an election and Labour leaders of the opposition in particular have not been very good at that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it is it is it's almost essential preparation to becoming a Prime Minister. Uh, the others who didn't have that experience were overwhelmed when they moved into number 10 uh, with the range and intensity of the pace. Um, uh, yeah, Fraser writes, uh, because I misunderstood a question he asked last week, but he says, I'm pleased... That, I did, that me did misunderstand it because I gave an answer to it, uh, the one I thought it was. Um, what he meant to say was more about whether Conservative MPs openly preferred Blair during Blair's time in charge. He was making the point that some Labour MPs appeared to openly prefer a Tory win or some Labour supporters uh, than a Corbyn uh, win when Corbyn was leader. I don't know whether they openly prefer Blair but there was an admiration for Blair uh, amongst you know Cameron Osborne 
uh, Gove, um, uh, Letwin, and they all kind of, in different ways, tried to copy him. Uh, so it was there, but there wasn't the hatred of the various Conservative leaders that Blair faced that there was amongst some in Labour for uh, Corbyn. Oh, by the way, Fraser says, and this is interesting, for those bread makers amongst the listeners, growing number of listeners and bread makers. Fraser says, to get started on making bread, I recommend doing a search for no-need bread. And then, if the bug hits you, you can slowly add more steps in the future. Ah, uh, that's it. So Fraser recommends back to basics. Keep it simple. No-need bread. And if, if we get into it, and when I say we, I haven't started yet. I mean, it's so bloody easy to go down and buy bread, have two slices, put on about eight stone, and then get on with life. But um, no-need bread is the way to start. So if you're into it, or want to be into it, go and get some of that to begin. That's that's a good tip, because some of it looks so complicated. Um, uh, from Venetia Keane, Kane, Venetia writes, oh, look at this for, just, just live this vicariously. I've driven from Dumfrieshire to Granton on Spey in the Highland region. Before I listened to your podcast, I just heard, oh, uh, yeah, even there, Venetia can't keep off the news. Uh, she had uh, heard how the, in inverted commas, saintly Cummings uh, didn't provide evidence to the select committee uh, after his seven hours of hearing, um, mainly evidence against Hancock, but other evidence. Yeah, he didn't. He plans to provide it in different forms, I think, but let's see. You see, the problem is some of the evidence would involve tape recordings of conversations, and I bet he hasn't got those. Anyway, let's see. Uh, anyway, Venetia's journey continues. I plugged you into my ears at Kinross, set off deliberately on the slow tourist route, and the podcast lasted me to a little way beyond Gilter Town, which itself is a few miles north of Perth. You must have been driving slowly to get that far uh, with the podcast uh, on. Or maybe, no, maybe you had to be driving fast to get that far. Anyway, I heard you say, in reference to Ed Miliband's proposals, how are you going to pay for it all? Uh, and she makes the point uh, that uh, while interest rates are low, now is indeed the time to be borrowing money. And I know Venetia worked in government. I think I think you did, Venetia, um, at different points where these issues of tax and spend were so potent. Um, yeah, it seems to me, although I know the Treasury is worried about rising interest rates, it's obviously the time to be borrowing money. And by the way, it was in 2010 when uh, austerity builders' centrist policies from Cameron and Osborne uh, austerity and real-term spending cuts were imposed because of this obsession, this fetish about the deficit. Do you remember? The deficit, the deficit, the deficit. Uh, every bloody interview, the deficit. What are you going to do about the deficit? And the answer could have been borrow money. Certainly borrow money to invest on capital projects, but they didn't even do that or much of it. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying your tour if you're still on it, Venetia. Maybe you're even further north listening to this podcast. Who knows? Um, James Buckley. Uh, the last episode of the pod raised the question, who else but Starmer? It's a question we seem to have asked quite a bit lately. I have to say it's ominous for Keir Starmer that the question is in the air at all. Um, and he goes on to write, 
Who'd have the best odds against Johnson Sunak? Seems to me that such a leader would have to have instant ability, heft and cut through. No time to grow into the role or develop name recognition. My conclusion, Tony Blair. And then he says, okay, it's not going to happen. Andrew Adonis tweets every five minutes, it's got to be Blair, it's got to be Blair. He does it with the full cooperation and knowledge of Tony Blair. Um, but I don't think that is going to happen. I don't think it would be the wisest move either for reasons for another podcast. Um, so he then goes on to say other options, Reeves, Phillips, uh, Bryant, Lammy, even David Miliband, that won't happen either, would have only a glancingly slim chance. Uh, so Labour seems condemned to take slim chances even after so many defeats. Yeah, that is the context, I think. Um, no obvious sort of titan there. Uh, we've talked before about Andy Burnham. Politics is so shallow at the moment. He's seen as a winner. Maybe that is the kind of device required. Um, if we get to that point, and uh, I don't think Labour are at that point yet, but it looks as if they could well lose Batley and Spen, which inevitably will trigger a summer of turbulence for Keir Starmer. Uh, Chris Hall. Oh, uh, yeah, on Labour leaders. Uh, do you think that the increase in metropolitan mayoralties will benefit Labour nationally while they're out of power? Um, Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan and others showing they have the capacity to government. Yeah, undoubtedly. It's one of the big differences with the 1980s where power was really centralised at Westminster. Remember, no Scottish Parliament, no Welsh Assembly, no Northern Ireland Assembly, no mayors. And indeed, uh, Thatcher abolished the GLC and other metropolitan authorities. Um, now there are these platforms, at least, very limited power, but platforms for figures to win elections and to um, become figures of power in their own right. Limited, but there. So I do think it's a big difference. Um, and uh, it is why people like Burnham are being seen as a possible future leader, not least by Andy Burnham. Uh, Lee from Hemel Hempstead says that um, I wanted to ask about the vetoing of Johnson's education Build Back Better plan by Sunak. If you remember uh, Johnson's ex now, education advisor, wanted £15 billion spent. Sunak argued that it needed to be about 45 pence. Um, Sunak was originally perceived to have been a creature of Cummings following Sajid Javi's uh, resignation. Well, Javi was sacked, actually, in effect. Um, and clearly, although he has made and is making mistakes, he has positioned himself as a leadership contender, yeah, undoubtedly, with his own branding and Osborne-like tendency uh, to disappear at a sign of trouble. I, did Osborne do that? Uh, anyway, um, he also appeared to have the blessing of Cummings. He did and still does. Yeah, as you say, he was very pro-Sunak at his evidence. Uh, to what extent do you think that Sunak's cost-cutting budget and his clashes with Johnson over fundamentals such as education, uh, where Johnson will be judged, stem from political manoeuvring uh, or from a relatively inexperienced chancellor? I think it's the second. I mean, clearly he wants to be the next leader. That is obvious and is widely perceived to be a likely successor. Uh, but I think it is easy to forget how inexperienced he is. I mean, a couple of years ago, he was a junior minister in a relatively mid-league government department, and he is now Chancellor 
in the context of the biggest economic challenge since 1945. And I think inexperience, with, uh, kind of combined with his Thatcherite instincts, are more of an explanation. Some things are calculated, like letting it be known he is relaxed if the fall lockdown wasn't lifted which of course it hasn't been. Um, but uh, that is all about leadership because he got it so badly wrong last autumn where he urged um, no return to constraints. Um, okay, let's move on. We've got so many. Uh, Claude Green, do you think Cummings might have actually brought Johnson down if he hadn't been disgraced over the Barnard Castle saga? Uh, I don't think so, Claude. Uh, I think voters at the moment in parts of England are predisposed to give Johnson the biggest benefit of the doubt and I get emails from friends who are in a sort of complacent fantasy world you know no one could do better this kind of thing um, and so I think even if Cummings had descended from the heavens pure as pure um, some voters wouldn't have listened or if they had listened just assumed uh, Boris did as much as he could have done uh, that's where we are now that could easily change remember in the autumn or early autumn, uh, Starmer's personal ratings were ahead of Johnson's. So things are febrile, voters are fickle, but enough of them in England at the moment are with him. Uh, and, and Cummings probably knew that, but I suspect he's disappointed not to have made more of an impact. Uh, now, what about this for a bit of kind of escapism for all of us? Lorraine B from Manchester writes, uh, she she loves, oh, thank you, she loves listening to the podcast. Anyway, she said, uh, everyone seems to write in saying where they listen to you. Yeah, yeah, it's part of it. Some of the purists, to use that word, you know, outrageous EU purists, taking a purist interpretation of a treaty Britain signed. Um, they should have realised Britain would be impure. Anyway, some purists, Lorraine, don't like it. You know, they say, oh, Steve, can we just have the politics, not this lifestyle stuff? But I, I really like it. I kind of, it's, it's part of our well-being at the moment. And politics is so dire, interesting, fascinating, compelling, dire. So we need a bit of bread making and this. And how about this from Lorraine? I'm typically out for a walk, but today I'm camping solo in the fabulous Peak District. The sun is glorious and I couldn't be more relaxed listening to birdsong, the babbling stream, and of course your dulcet tones. Well, that's just the, the most brilliant email I've ever received, really. I mean, that's to be combined with all of that. Um, I hope it didn't ruin it, the podcast. All the rest of it is so idyllic. Yeah, Lorraine sent me a photo. It looked fantastic. Anyway, I hope you had a great time. You certainly got the good weather. Um, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Richard Ross, still not running, just walking and baking. Another baker. Uh, do you, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I was, I'd like to taste all this bloody bread, although I say eight stone per slice. Uh, anyway, Richard has, says he has a question and observation about Keir Starmer. Firstly, I'd be interested in your take on his interview with Piers Morgan. I thought he came over as intelligent, passionate and humorous and importantly, searingly honest. I agree with that because he is all those things. Um, and if the next election was a battle between integrity and honesty versus uh, chaos and uh, kind of lack of any moral compass, he'd win a landslide. But it's about literally and metaphorically feeling a room. You know what you mean? The best political leaders can feel a room. And I don't think he's got that yet. Now, you can learn it 
it's better if it comes instinctively, but you can learn it. But he's not got that yet. Um, but anyway, Richard says, give him a break. All this talk of leadership challenge is massively premature and unhelpful. Uh, yeah, although we've been reflecting on possible successes, so we're fueling the uh, sense of insecurity at the top of the Labour leadership. The problem is, Richard, when uh, the poll, are the polls again, you know, even though we know they're unreliable, but when they show such big leads, and if Labour lose Batley and Spen, you know, I, I don't think they'll come for him in, in the sense of removing him. But speculation about his leadership will intensify and it kind of feeds on itself. And of course, it's partly unfair. Uh, the context he operates in is a really tough one, Starmer. Um, but it does feed on itself uh, in the same way the success feeds on itself. So Blair began as leader miles ahead in the polls. So people then thought he was likely to be the next prime minister and a winner. And that led to bigger poll leads. And I'm afraid the opposite happens as well. And, and Starmer needs to turn things around fast. On that very subject, sorry about this, Richard. Have another slice of toast, because Roberta Mansell says, David Lammy fits the bill. I couldn't think of anyone, uh, you know, who had all these qualities. It, it's so difficult. Um, and this one of charisma and reading a room. And, and Lammy does in that respect, um, Roberta, I think. Um, I, th I think he's having a good, good time at the moment, a good phase. Um, Helen Gordon on the bread front says, I'm intrigued that many less listeners are impressed by bread making. Now look about this. Remember we had advice about how to keep it simple, but listen to this. I currently have a potato bread loaf proving while uh, uh, baking, is it? I don't know, while I listen to this week's podcast. Recipe on request if wanted. Well, um, can, could you send it in please, Helen? Um, anyway, Helen then goes on to disagree with me. Uh, on the issue of Corbyn and anti-Semitism. And, oh, because I said about Corbyn, why have you thought about him? He didn't go in for his personal attacks to the point where he couldn't even attack Johnson at Prime Minister's questions. And Theresa May, he was too bloody nice to them. Um, but uh, Helen goes on to make the point he insulted Jonathan Friedland on film as well as Margaret Hodge. Uh, did, did he go for Hodge? I mean, I know Margaret Hodge went for him. I, I didn't hear him, but maybe he did. I, anyway, and he didn't lift a finger to stop piles on by his supporters against Luciana Berger or Louise Elman. Even if you don't agree that JC is anti-Semitic, surely his behaviour in these courses demonstrates his willings, willingness to be as personal as possible in his enmities. Okay, I still would make the wider point. I know you disagree, Helen, and I hope that doesn't stop you from sending the recipe that Corbyn himself, um, I mean, his politics, of course, are deeply, deeply contentious, um, but it has been a relative, throughout his entire career, mild-mannered in tone, but I know you disagree. Uh, on Ed M, I still only wonder how he ever thought anything good would have come out of standing against his brother and splitting his family in two. I'm glad he got some therapeutic support and perhaps now has some insight. Helen, you and I are going to disagree again about this. I think Labour leadership contests, as we've discussed often on this um, podcast, don't come up very often. Maybe they should come up more often, although there seem to be quite a few of them these days. Um, so, for example, the one in 2010, which Ed Miliband and David Miliband contested, uh, was the first actual 
contest since 1994 because when Gordon Brown won there was no contest uh, it was what that silly thing where Gordon was standing against himself or nobody um, I think he had every right to stand uh, because he was a cabinet minister he was in a different political place from David um, and as he said somewhere else Ed Miliband uh, primogeniture shouldn't apply in politics as it doesn't apply in other matters so we have to disagree about that Helen but thank you so much for the email and the and the bread inspiration um, uh, okay onwards Emma Bernal who's written some brilliant columns uh, recently I, I'm not quite sure where maybe the Guardian website or forgive me Emma but I've read them very perceptive uh, column after the um, uh, terrible results or largely terrible results in May for Labour she too responds to my when I said I can't quite think who are these charismatic figures um, who could lead Labour to a more fruitful position um, and she says there are a few people in Labour politics who have this this kind of capacity to cast a spell really which is so important in leadership on the centre I would say Ali McGovern and Wes, Wes Streeting and on the left Angela Rayner what these three most have in common is their ability to reach beyond their core factions and make friends across factions. Wes and Angela get on famously, for example, and I've seen her speak at his fundraisers. I think this might be the stand-in for charisma that is worth looking at. Do they have appeal across the Labour Party and can that translate outside of it? I'm going to interrupt Emma there and say that is the key question it seems to me. Of course the internal dynamics matter but Labour are at such a crisis point it is this capacity to go beyond uh, the Labour Party and to communicate to the wider electorate to explain why they are advocating what they are advocating. The why question rarely answered by leaders but always answered by the political teachers who can win elections. Um, Starmer, this is back to Emma, Starmer won by doing the former, i.e. addressing across the party during the leadership contest, but I don't feel the levels of enthusiasm that is either generated by a Blair or a Corbyn from one faction or the other, or Rayner across the party. Yeah, but uh, the internal thing clearly matters because Labour are in, again, you, you, you can feel it, the sort of... Uh, you know the Owen Jones wing out to get Starmer some coalescing around Starmer some coalescing like Andrew Adonis around Tony Blair you can feel it stone this is what happens when opinion polls are terrible and by-elections are lost but the challenge for anyone whether it's Keir Starmer or a successor is that is the minor part binding this impossible lot together it's communicating to the wider electorate being a teacher beyond the Labour Party uh, and oh yeah what about this to end with Emma says she listens to the podcast while walking as I've pledged to walk 1,000 miles this year and I'm a little behind 1,000 miles I better make this podcast four hours Emma per day and you could just listen to it and walk and walk and walk but congratulations for even pledging it and I'm sure you'll do it and thank you for getting in touch. Actually, I forgot to, uh, Emma did it via 
Twitter, I must therefore give you um, the email address. Uh, for those of you running Baking Bread and want to make a note of the email address but haven't got time to stop running or baking or walking, uh, I'm giving the email address towards the end of the thing. It's about 48 minutes in. And here it is. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14, Rick, R-I-C, steverick14 at iCloud.com. Um, and uh, yeah, do make your points. Uh, let us know what you're doing. Bread tips, recipe tips, uh, and political questions of any sort. That's just about it. A reminder again, King's Place Live, June the 28th. I say God knows where we'll be in politics by then. Uh, but it will be crammed and it will almost be like the olden days in the main concert hall. Uh, but if you can't make it, it's streaming as well. And you'll be able to ask questions and make points on the live stream as well as within the hall where, you know, even though it will be safe as hell we could have a drink outside and afterwards or whatever uh, but it will be great to see you there and also at the Greenwich Theatre and the Rope Tackle Arts Centre in Shoreham on the south coast uh, in July and tickets are available on their websites if you could leave a review and rating and subscribe to this podcast that would be great because it gets to more people as if by magic and thank you the bread will be cooked the running will be complete the walk along the canal will be midway, perhaps. Uh, thousands of miles would have been walked. Thank you so much for listening. Well, we've got through a lot, but by next week, more twists and turns for us all to make sense of. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. Bye. <laughs>